So first of all, thank you all very much for coming. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I wanted to start out by reading two things, actually reading one thing for you by one of the most famous philosophers of the last 50 years, and then explaining logically how people capture wild monkeys in Brazil. <laughs> so, and then I'm gonna to try to put those two things together. So uh, this is a quote from one of the leading philosophers of our time, not that, anyway, I'll be nice. He forever has been at UC Berkeley, and uh, anyway, one of the most famous philosophers. And he wrote a sort of like a, an undergraduate textbook on philosophy of mind because without going into all the details of academic philosophy in the last 100 years or so, but at this point, uh, probably the main focus of Western philosophy is philosophy of mind. Consciousness, like what is consciousness and who are we? Because we are obviously the guys that are conscious inside this body. And so if we understand what consciousness is or what the mind is, that may help us to understand what we are. So that's, that's become a philosophical focus. And this is what he said. By the way, this person, as far as I know, is an atheist. And, uh, you know, honk if you love atheists. I, I think he's an atheist. And... Um, and uh, so, so he's not like a spiritual guru type guy, but nonetheless, he is, I suppose, intellectually honest. And here's something he said. The single most influential family of views in the philosophy of mind throughout the 20th century and leading into the 21st century is one version or another of materialism. Yay. Materialism is the view that the only reality that exists, somewhat redundant there, but the only reality that exists is material or physical reality, like this is it. And consequently, if mental states, if mental states have a real existence, they must in some sense be reducible to, they must be nothing but physical states of some kind. It's like, if, let's say you're selling apples, you want everyone to buy your apples, and someone comes in and says, I wanna buy a tractor. And you say, well, actually, tractors are a type of apple. <laughs> no, that's like crazy. But that's something, what something like that happens in academic philosophy. It's like, I wanna understand who I am. What is consciousness? Because Consciousness itself is not a physical object, it's consciousness. And so, oh, that's a kind of physical thing. Yeah, yeah, so, so that's materialism. That's what he's talking about. That even if it's obvious that you are an individual, unique, conscious being with feelings, with volition, with will, and desires, and creativity, and love, and all that, it's just kind of like a stone or a piece or a plastic cup. It's kind of a different form of it. And that's supposed to be like persuasive. 
which is probably why academic philosophy has become so irrelevant. This, this is a true story, actually. I was, uh, I'll tell you a true story. These are all true stories. I'll tell you when it's not. But I was giving a talk at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and it so happened that the room where I was speaking was next to the philosophy department, their office. And um, so I was there a little early, and I was just, you know, compulsive reader reading the stuff they had posted on the bulletin board for the philosophy department. And interestingly, they had a transcription there of the talk, the, a talk given by the chairman of the philosophy department at the last graduation ceremony at the University of Colorado at this little event for graduating philosophy majors. And what was amazing is his whole talk was trying to convince the parents of the students, don't think you wasted your money because you paid you worked so hard and paid for your kid to go to the university and he majored in philosophy <laughs> like he'll never get a job <laughs> and, and so here's the chairman of a major philosophy department his whole talk was trying to make parents you know don't feel that you waste through your money away because your kid majored in philosophy which shows you kind of that philosophy is not like the growth industry right now in this country <laughs> And it kind of reminds me, it, 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 there's, there's a genre of Sanskrit literature called Puranas, which are all these amazing stories and fables and, and real stories. And so there's a typical thing, this ancient literature where some bad person, some demon will throw a weapon at the enemy. But the, if the weapon doesn't kill the enemy, it comes back and kills the person that threw it. You know, it's kind of like if you start a, you start a fight and you don't win the fight, then, you know, if you start a fight with the wrong person, it goes it goes south. So something like that happened with academic philosophy. I won't go into the whole story, although it's interesting. But at a certain point, which you can trace back, in fact, in 1920, there was something called the Circle of Vienna, where they actually met in Vienna, these philosophers. And there was a conscious decision made to totally destroy metaphysics. Really bad move. Metaphysics means everything is beyond the physical. This is, these are Aristotle's terms. Meta, meta in Greek means beyond or what's beyond or after. And so the idea is, for example, we have bodies or physical bodies. There are mountains and rivers and an infinite supply of plastic in the Pacific Ocean. So these are all, you know, that's all, that's all physical. But what about your values? What about equality? Like I was, I was at USC, we were talking about this. Sorry for the rerun, if any of you were there. But equality is not empirical. There, first of all, there's, no, there's not a physical thing you can hold up and say, this is an equality. It comes in three colors or five <laughs> flavors. So it's, equality is not a physical thing, and it's not even an empirical thing. It's actually impossible to empirically prove that we're all equal. And yet we know at a deeper level, at a deeper level, that we actually are equal, and yet it's not empirical. So our deepest values, people give their lives for their country, for their families, for people they love, and so on and so forth. And, and so these are all values. These are all metaphysical items. Justice is metaphysical. Uh, equality is metaphysical. And so uh, they declared war on this. Basically what happened is, actually I will say a little bit about, about the history of the field of philosophy. There's a reason why if you get a PhD in biology, it's a doctor of philosophy. And there's a reason why if you get a PhD in geology 
or history or many things. Why is it a doctor of philosophy? Because philosophia, love of wisdom, philosophia, philosophy used to be kind of like the blanket term that covered any serious, systematic, learned investigation into reality. And then historically what happened is all these fields kind of peeled off, like, like America used to be part of Great Britain, but it's not now. And so, for example, science just peeled off, like, no, we're going into business for ourselves. We're, you know, we're, we're our own thing. We are biology, we are physiology, we're physics, we're math, we're this and that. And in uh, all kinds of other fields, I mean, psychology used to be philosophy of mind. But then post-Freud, someone who really needed a good psychiatrist. But anyway, <laughs> after Freud, psychology went into business for itself. So philosophy, it's kind of like they kept losing fields of study. And what was finally left, like what is left? And so they're, they, they were like in their, in, their, in their desperate search for relevance, they thought we need to be like science. Because science, they get all the money, they get all the attention, everyone believes in science so we have to be like science we have to be mathematical and blah 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 and, and basically they self-destructed which is why you know many parents would be very disappointed if not alarmed if their child majors in philosophy they actually say well no you, it's actually really good as preparation for business for law school because you can think of this <laughs> anyway so now we have philosophy of mind and they still have some relevance. I mean, some people still take it seriously and they still write books and so on and so forth. And if you pay taxes, they still use your money to teach. <laughs> so, but here's what he's talking about. Uh, there's a sense in which materialism, which was again, that move to, to dump metaphysics. We'll just talk about the physical world because that's what, you know, people just care about science now and technology. So there's a sense in which uh, and this is materialism is the religion of our time. There's a sense in which materialism is the religion of our time. In America, if you want to legally register a church or a religious institution, you can do so as an atheist. There's absolutely no legal requirement in this country if you're going to legally register a religion to believe in God or angels or a soul or anything like that. It's legally not required. And maybe just uh, very quickly, I will read uh, a definition from one of the worst dictionaries on earth, which is the Apple Dictionary. <laughs> it really is. So anyway, the definition of religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling. Oh, okay, we'll go down. Yeah. Or a pursuit of interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. That's the one, because that's. So, like, for example, you say, like, yeah, skateboarding is his religion, or French literature is her religion. It, it means, like, something to which you ascribe supreme importance. And so we are hardwired. There are certain, how should I put it? There was an idea. There was an idea uh, in the 18th century when they overthrew monarchy, the French Revolution. That was, whew, you didn't want to be in France back then. If you really want to get a, this unforgettable picture of how bad it was, read Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which is an amazing portrait of just what was going on. But anyway, um, 
up until the scientific revolution of the 17th century, up until the age of enlightenment, <laughs> the age of, in, in, in the 18th century, the world didn't change very much. I mean, you could literally go back thousands of years and people kind of lived the same way. In our world, I mean, obviously every 10 years, it's a, it's a whole different world. It's a whole different planet, every, like every 10 years or so. But people went thousands of years. In fact, if you were in Europe, let's say in the 1500s, the kind of house you lived in, the kind of clothes you had, the technology, so-called technology, medical technology, transportation technology, was actually worse than it used to be. And, and that's why they started the Renaissance. Here, I'm back on my Renaissance rant here. But and the Renaissance was a rebirth of pagan culture. Why? Like, why rebirth it? Because it was much better than we've got now. That's why the people who started the Renaissance, that's why they started it. Because, oh my God, things really went to hell. Like, people used to be civilized. People used to be intelligent. People used to have nice houses. They used to actually take baths. They used to, you know, they wrote great literature. Now we're just kind of in this primitive medieval type thing. And so... And even if you go back, let's say, to the Greco-Roman times, the classical world, as far as they knew, their level of technology, of science, was pretty much the way it had always been. It had always been that way. And so the sense of progress, no one looked to the future because there was absolutely no reason for any rational person to think that the future will be any different than it is now, technologically. And since the future is unknown, and for all we know, some, you know, narcissistic sociopath could get elected president in the future. <laughs> because because we, we really don't know what's going to happen. Whereas in the past, the past is reliable. Because even though we know in the past there were always bad people, but there were good people. We have models. We have paragons of virtue. We can have, we can look back to really great people who lived in the past, whereas the future is totally unknown. And since technologically nothing's going to change anyway, there's no reason for our values to change. There's, no, there's nothing like social science. And so people look to the past and people look to the Garden of Eden, believe it or not. And the official explanation in European universities for the diversity of human language, like why do we have all these different languages, the official university explanation was the Tower of Babel from the Bible, that people wanted to reach heaven without pleasing God, and so they're going to build a tower so high. You know, it's kind of like this not really bright idea that heaven's just like really high up there. <laughs> and so, and then God, to this is in the Old Testament, God in order to confuse them because, no, you guys got to buy a ticket, you know, no, no gate crashing in heaven. And so he, um, <laughs> before that, everyone spoke the same language. Then, you know, Alakazam or whatever, suddenly everyone starts speaking different languages. They couldn't communicate with each other. And therefore, the whole construction project stopped. And everyone kind of wandered off looking. Is there anyone within the sound of my voice that, that understands what I'm saying? So, but that was the official university explanation for the diversity of languages. So it was a very different world. In fact, that's why the Vedas, these sacred Sanskrit literature we use, that's why they say it was only maybe like 3,000 years old or so, because it couldn't be older 
if it was older, it would contradict the Bible, the story of the Garden of Eden. And so therefore, the Vedas had to be younger than what they believed to have been the date of the Garden of Eden. And anyway, that was European scholarship. So I guess the point I want to make here is that at a certain point in European history, and I, I, there, there's a lot to say, but I'll just kind of cut to the, the, the main point here. And that is that people began to see religion as oppressive. And they were right, actually. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to trash religion, say that European religion, nothing good. I mean, there were many saints. There were some really great people, saintly people, lovers of God. It's not like everyone was a bad person. But as an institution, it absolutely was repressive. Not only politically and economically, by the way. That's why all these German princes joined the Reformation, because they became millionaires overnight, because half of Germany belonged to the Vatican. So they had extreme financial incentives <laughs> to switch, <laughs> to become Protestant. Anyway, so there was political repression. There was intellectual repression. Unless you just towed the party line, which was, again, medieval dogma, you couldn't get a job in a university. It's just like now, if you let it be known that you're spiritual, you may not get a job in a university. So that's a whole story how, you know, this pendulum effect. So at a certain point in Europe, in the West, religion became seen very definitely as the enemy, the problem. It's holding everything back. And you get, I mean, just a few examples. Marx, you know, how could the Russian people or how could people in all the now, you know, industrialized countries, because the Industrial Revolution was going, how could they accept all this cruelty of their masters? They live in, I mean, you can't even believe how bad it was. Working conditions, it's really beyond our imagination. People having to enter tunnels, coal miners in Northern England having to enter tunnels where you had to stoop over, bend over, and walk like four miles, three or four miles, and walk back and breathe I mean, you know, if you lived to be 40, you were like, oh my God, you're ancient. And so, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the conditions were so bad. And so Marx sort of asked the question, like, why do human beings tolerate this? Why do they accept this? And he said, there must be on some kind of drug and the drug is religion, the opiate of the masses. So, you know, so religion is just some drug that makes people stupid so that they tolerate all kinds of abuse. And it's all because of their religion. Anyway, that was his theory. And then you get, what was his name, Gibbons, who wrote that really important book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And this is at a time in Europe when the Roman Empire is being seen as, wow, that was so cool. I mean, you know, even you got to admit, the haircuts were pretty cool, the togas. I mean, they were, apart from all the atrocities, I mean, just ordinary Roman. I mean, it was a pretty classy civilization. But in any case, Europeans started looking back to that, wow, because... Before you look back to the Garden of Eden, you look back to the Old Testament. But as Europe started to advance scientifically, industrially, intellectually, you started to get truly the great modern universities scientifically. And they said, hell no, we're not looking back to, to the Old Testament, you know, all the genocide stories and this and that. Rather, um, Let's look, let's look back to our real ancestors, because we're not Middle Eastern. 
Let's look back to our real ancestors who are the Greco-Romans. They gave us democracy. They gave us, you know, in, in logic, philosophy. And, and, and so I'm not, by the way, taking a position on all this. I'm not endorsing this or, 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 or arguing again. I'm just saying this is what people were thinking. And so therefore, Gibbons, this, this great historian, asked the question, why did this great civilization fall? And why did this, because the Greco-Roman world intellectually, in some ways, was actually more sophisticated than our world intellectually. I and mean, if you actually know what was going on back then. I mean, they didn't have technology, but they did have the humanities like anything. And so why did it collapse? Why did it fall? And so his answer, it became Christian. That's why the Roman, that's why this great civilization collapsed. It became Christian. And that was, you know, game over. Christianity ruined classical civilization. Or um, Marx, uh, Christ, you know, religion makes people stupid and makes them endure all kinds of abuse. And then, and then, you know, it's like, and then it's like a tag team. Then they tag, you know, this big heavy wrestler, uh, Sigmund Freud. And he comes in and Freud says that actually religion is an emotional disease. Because what you, which was, you know, Freud was a really nice guy. Actually, there, when I was at Harvard, there was, I, I spoke to this professor. He was at Boston College. He was a um, psychology professor. I think he was also a Jesuit, but he, but he was definitely a psychology professor. And he, he'd written this book in which he kind of proved that if you take Freud's criteria for uh, mental illness and apply it to Freud's theory of religion, it actually, Freud's theory is actually, it has all kinds of symptoms of mental illness in terms of his obsessiveness, the hatred, and so that his own theory of religion is pathological by his own criteria of psychopathology. But in any case, you have Freud. And, uh, and so, it, it, because people who had bad relationships with their fathers or just weren't satisfied in the relationship, there's something, you know, something is unfulfilled and something is weird in your relationship with your father. And you compensate for that by projecting a father figure out there. And that's religion, you know, sort of paternalistic religion, patri et filio. And so, so we got, for Marx, religion is, makes people stupid and that makes them embrace abuse. Uh, we have Gibbons, uh, religion destroyed this great civilization. We have Freud, it's a mental disease. And the beat goes on. And then in this sort of uh, inspirational, inspirationally secular atmosphere, then you get this circle of Vienna in 1921, where they decide that let's put this bastard out of his misery. Like religion, let's just like, you know, put the last dagger in the heart of religion. So, oh, by the way, I, 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 I left out Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley, who was like, you know, best bud of Darwin. And um, he, there's a quote from Thomas Huxley, where he says that, I mean, just like Hercules, the myth is, the Greek myth is that Hercules was born and as this powerful little baby, I mean, really bouncing baby boy, and he was surrounded by all these poisonous snakes and he just like crushed all these poisonous snakes and kind of 
you know, outed himself as Hercules. And so Thomas Huxley says that science is the new Hercules because it has this unlimited power to rationalize and improve human life. And what is religion? Who are the priests? The priests are the poisonous snakes that want to kill this heroic, this hero of rationality, of science, of, an, of real enlightenment, of real progress, of real happiness, and religious priests are just the poisonous snakes that want to kill it. And by the way, in, in academia, in, in terms of, you, you can study, the, the, uh, there's a real good course actually on YouTube given by a lady, what's her name? Um, I, I have it here, but uh, really nice uh, young professor. And she gave a course on religion, magic, and science at UCLA, which is on YouTube. It's got tens or hundreds of thousands of hits, a really good course. And, and, and she brings out some of these, uh, some of these points. So, and then you get the, the circle of Vienna, let's just destroy metaphysics. Like if it ain't physical, if it ain't empirical, it ain't. And of course, what philosophers eventually realized is that this was really idiotic, not just because it was impious and not nice, but because it was logically self-contradictory. It was circular reasoning. Because if you say that nothing is real unless it can be empirically demonstrated, it turns out you cannot empirically demonstrate that claim. So to use the technical philosophical term, it is self-referentially incoherent. So, and people finally figure out, wait a second, you guys just contradict yourself. It's like never say never. But anyway, so here we are now. Here we are now, and, and in fairness to the religion haters, I should say, because <laughs> I, I, I want to you know, be fair to them also, that the religious history of the Western world was absolutely traumatizing. For example, if you go to Oxford, England, if you go to Oxford, England, and in the center of Oxford, this great old college town, where the, obviously where the ox crossed the river, right? Oxford. That's what it was. But anyway, so right in the center of Oxford is a monument to three Oxford theology professors who were burned alive. I mean, that can ruin your whole day. <laughs> they, were, they were burned alive, presumably at the stake, because there was this horrible period in English history. And, and, and you know, everyone's heard the Inquisitions and Crusades, and if you actually study these things, you may have an image in your mind what it is, but if you actually go and study what really happened, it's much worse than you think. And so there was this horrific time in English history where Henry VIII, you know, jumped ship and started the Anglican Church. And then after him, one of his daughters, Mary, said, no, we're actually going back to the Catholic Church again. And then Elizabeth came in. And so there was a time in English history where every time a new monarch came in, everyone had to change their religion, or at least half the country. And it was horrible. Even like the great composers, if, if you look at the great composers like, um, what's his name? Oh, my God. So I, I play, actually, keyboard. And uh, what's... I just forgot his name, but they had some really great English composers. So if you were if you were like a serious composer back then, if a Catholic monarch came in, 
you had to compose everything with certain types of musicology and Latin. And then literally five minutes later, if that person died or was poisoned or something happened, and then a Protestant monarch came in, you had to switch your whole thing. Because now you had to, it had to be English words and you know they had a different kind of music they liked. And, and then you know, if there was a Protestant monarch, they would go and destroy all the abbeys and monasteries. And then if there was a Catholic monarch, they'd all be rehabilitated. And, you know, people who were in jail for being the long religion were let out. New people were put in jail. It was crazy. I mean, it was really insane. And it finally led to uh, sanity. And, and I mean, and, and, and kind of the culmination of this madness was the Oliver Cromwell, that, that, that revolution. Which really, the English had their revolution 100 years before the French, 120 or 30 years. And then after that, the British just thought, this is insane. And so, okay, let's just have religious tolerance, and then you get kind of the modern system. But anyway, so these three professors, they were burned alive. These were like learned, nice guys because they didn't want to be Catholic. And at first they said, okay, we'll be Catholic. They thought, no, because they thought if we become Catholic, we'll burn forever because Catholics are all going to hell. I mean, it, it was really absurd back then. Whereas if we stayed Protestant, sure, we burned alive once, but once is better than forever. There was a time, if you look at New England, if you look at the English colonies in this country, America in the, say, the 1600s, there was like, there were just a few Europeans in this, you know, they thought it was a wilderness because wilderness means no white people. So <laughs> they were in this wilderness and the only Europeans were just, you know, the French up in Quebec and the English in New England. They were like neighbors. And everyone in New England was convinced that everyone in Quebec is going to hell. And everyone in Quebec was convinced that everyone in New England is going to hell. So I mentioned this to give, you know, a break to the religion haters. Because if you look at the religious history in the West, it's awful. And although there were a lot of nice people, I mean, institutionally kind of awful, but I mean, there were a lot of really sincere, really good people. I mean, really admirable people who belonged to these different religions, but there was so much bad history. And so inevitably, the first person to talk about the pendulum effect, by the way, in the West was Galileo. And of course, the pendulum effect, as we now know, occurs not just with physical pendulums, but it also occurs sociologically, it occurs psychologically. If you go to one psychological extreme, you'll probably snap to the other extreme. Societies, it, it, there's a political pendulum effect. I mean, Plato talked about that. Plato talks about the political pendulum effect. He says that uh, tyranny tends to lead to anarchy or democracy, which he thought was just one little step above anarchy. So economically, politically, and, and, and so you have this pendulum effect against religion, which to some extent is still going strong among certain intellectual or academic communities. And so, uh, but there's a problem here. Like the idea that only the material things are the really real. Uh, there's a major problem with that. I mean, the first problem, of course, is logically that it's self-contradictory and self-contradictory things. 
usually aren't true. Like, for example, if you say a round square, there probably is no such thing. So just one word about philosophy. Um, some things are empirically untrue. Like if you say, for example, there's a unicorn in this room, and let's say all of us are reasonably normal in terms of our visual abilities, and we're intelligent enough to know what a unicorn looks like, and there's enough of us to see every square inch of this room and more. And so we say, no, we have empirical evidence that in fact there is not, at least there's not a visible unicorn in this room. So there are some things that you decide are true or false by going out and looking or experimenting or investigating. But other things, you don't have to do that. Other things are logically impossible. For example, a square circle. A square, you don't have to go around, okay, everybody look around, see if there's a square circle, you know, within your site. No. If you know what the English word square, not the colloquial sense. If you know what the English, the geometric term, if you know what a square is, and if you know what the English word circle means, then you know there can be no such thing as a square circle. It's, it's simply by the words, by the mean of the words, it cannot be true. In that same sense, the idea that only things empirically proved can be rationally accepted as proved, it's like a square circle. Logically, it cannot be true, because if it is true, it isn't true. Since that statement is in the category, is, an, is a totally non-empirical statement, if it's true, it's not true. And a statement which, if true is not true, doesn't, it, it's just, it's not describing anything in the real world. You can say, you can juxtapose the two English words, square and circle, but you're not talking about anything. You're actually not describing anything. And we know that just from what the words mean. So just from what the words mean, we know that the claim that only things empirically proved are true doesn't mean anything. That actually it's a meaningless statement. And philosophers finally figured that out, and most people haven't figured that out because they're about 50 years behind philosophers. But anyway, so where does that leave us here? Um, okay, here's another problem. There, there's a, log a serious, like a fatal logical problem with fanatical empiricism. But there's, there's even, there's another problem, a corollary problem, which is just as bad. And that is, that is this. The essence of the scientific, I hope you don't mind me talking about this stuff because having been encouraged he went on and so <laughs> <laughs> so the um the the essence of the scientific method is the controlled experiment the con no controlled experiments, no empirical science. It is the controlled experiment applied to the natural world as opposed to the metaphysical world. Now, there's an obvious problem there. There's a huge problem in what I just said. It, and that lies in the word control. Because if in order to do empirical stuff, 
you need to perform some kind of controlled experiment, that means a priori, which means before the game even starts. Uh, you can never detect anything that you can't control. Because access is also control. In other words, if you control access to another person, so even if that person doesn't want you in their home, you can still enter their home. Either you're a criminal or, that, or the other person's a criminal and you're a police or I mean, something's going on, but it's not a normal social relationship because access is control. And so ultimately claiming that everything has to be empirically proved is not a logical statement. It's actually an emotional problem. Because if you believe that nothing can ever be real unless I control it, you need help. And you know, uh -huh. hopefully your friends will do an intervention and, and get you that help you need. Because, and, and so talk about, it, it's like perhaps one of the most narcissistic epistemologies ever devised. Uh, it, it's amazing. It's this narcissistic epistemology that if I can't control something, it doesn't exist. And as we should know, if we can, you know, if we're not like a, just swimming in hubris, what we should know is that actually the greatest things out there are not under our control. Because if they were, they'd be schleps like us. I mean, that's Yiddish. Anyway, if they, because if there's nothing out there greater than us, we are in big trouble. <laughs> we are in serious trouble. And because we can imagine, we can imagine much greater things than we actually have. That's why the uh, cosmetic surgery industry is flourishing in Southern California. has its own section. Well, Yellow Pages, there are no, no more Yellow Pages. But anyway, <laughs> when there were, sorry. For, okay, you probably don't know what I'm talking about when I say yellow pages, but anyway. So the idea that nothing is real as I can control it, that's, that's an emotional problem. So, so if you really, and, and if, if you study every textbook, practically every written, ever written, every secular textbook ever written on the history of philosophy in the Western world, they will always say, always, believe me, always, that what was different in Greece, the new thing that happened in Greece with the discovery of, was knowledge for its own sake. Because, for example, the Egyptians had a basic geometry, which they used every year when the Nile over flooded its banks, which it did. In fact, that was the key to the flourishing agriculture in Egypt. In fact, okay, very quickly. In the century before Christ, uh, um, Rome was, was beset by all these civil wars. And there's anyway reasons I won't go into why they had all these civil wars in the century. But so if you wanted to usurp power in Rome, if you wanted to defeat the reigning power in Rome, the easiest way to do that, which they often did was, hey, just block the harbor. And the grains can't come from Egypt. And then they starve and they surrender and you're the new leader of Rome. So Italy couldn't feed itself even 100 years before Christ for various 
geographic and political and economic reasons. But anyway, so Egypt was the breadbasket of the empire in a sense. And, and every year the Nile overflooded its banks. I don't know, God knows what it does now, you know, what they've done to Egypt, but the Nile overflooded its banks and would fertilize all the land. And then once the water receded, you had to put all the boundaries back in because people own land and you had to, so, so they had to use geometry to figure out where the boundaries were again. And so they had geometry, but what was new in Egypt, according to every secular history philosophy textbook ever written, um, was that the Greeks were interested in geometry for its own sake. Like, uh, what's his name, uh, Euclides? Uh, no, what's his name? It, it's that street that goes down to campus in Berkeley. No, no, the geographer, the Greek, I can't believe I forgot that. Euclidean, yeah, Euclides. Or something like that. Anyway, yeah, Euclidean geometry, not age related. So, so knowledge for its own sake, that's supposed to be what launched the whole philosophical, academic, intellectual tradition in the West was knowledge for its own sake. But now, science, in a sense, not science, I mean, most science is just nice, you know, men and women that just go to work every day and try to do their job. But in terms of scientism, fanatical science, it's not knowledge for its own sake, it's knowledge for power. Because any knowledge which doesn't give us power over the world is not really important. You have to be able to predict things. And prediction is power. If you, if you know what's, what's going to happen, that gives you power. If you know the future, you have power over the future because you know what's going to happen. Just like in all the sci-fi movies, some guy can see the future, so he buys all the right stocks or bets on all the right horses. So knowledge of the future is power. And so if we really have the spirit of knowledge, well, knowledge for its own sake, we value knowledge. We believe that the more we know about important things, not to win trivia contests, but the more wisdom we have, the more we understand the important things of life, the better our life will be. If you really believe that, you cannot put artificial rules in the game that, but I will only look at a possible knowledge if I have power over it. And if there's anything out there which might be more powerful than me, I don't want to know about it, and I'm going to just declare it doesn't exist. In other words, modern science. So. Obviously, that is not a promising approach to get knowledge. You can't put those kinds of rules in, nor should we become religious fanatics or just, you know, nutty people. In other words, you just have to be open and go out there and see what's out there with an open mind, with an open heart. And if it turns out that what's out there is greater than you, that's just the way it is. Get over it. You know, it may kind of impinge a little on that little narcissist inside of each of us. But if it turns out that that's the way it is, don't, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And so then the next uh, last point I wanted to make, I actually never make a last point. But anyway, <laughs> one more thing I wanted to say is that if you design experiments in science, you don't just go out there and 
with a Geiger counter and look for drowned brown dwarfs in space or try to figure out how fast a car is going. You design experiments and it is a logical fact. It is a logical fact that the concept of searching for anything, for anything, the concept of searching re logically requires that you know something or believe you know something about what you're searching for. For example, if I say, and let's say I, like I'm serious, let's say I was serious, I will give a million dollars to the first person that brings me a squism. <laughs> and you say, give me a hint, no hints. Is it an object? Is it an idea? Is it no hints? The point is, unless you know something or believe you know something about a squism, you can't search for it. <laughs> so searching, the, you know, the English, the dictionary definition of English logically requires that you know something or believe you know something about what you're searching for. And that's why in science you design experiments based on what you think could be out there. To give an example, um, I actually uh, did some of my undergraduate work at UCLA. I took an astronomy course and uh, I remember there was one professor who was kind of like, I mean, he was kind of like as enthusiastic as a, I don't know, like some new member of the Hare Krishna movement or something. <laughs> and so, <laughs> if you belong to a religious institution, you better have a really good sense of humor. Anyway, so he was, this guy was searching for brown dwarfs. He was searching for brown dwarfs. A brown dwarf is a celestial body that tried out to be a star and got cut, didn't make the starting team. It you know, tried to be a star, but didn't make it because the internal combustion didn't heat up enough. It has to get so hot that it just, you know, as they say, a star is born. And it didn't happen. So it gets the consolation prize. It becomes a brown dwarf. And this was a theory because it was kind of like astronomy now, the essence of astronomy is actually not telescopes, it's mathematics, if you read astronomy textbooks. And so they kind of, all their calculations said that there should be brown dwarfs out there. And this professor at UCLA was saying, I know they're out there, I know we're gonna find them. And, and they actually did, they actually found them. But the point here is they designed an experiment if a brown dwarf exists, and they didn't know if they did or not. But if a brown dwarf exists, it probably will be like this, and this is the way you detect this. So what are you looking for? And how do you detect that thing if it's really out there? So now, this is the scientific method. So if you apply the scientific method, again, not prejudicing it, not prejudging, because science is an open category. Science is a neutral term. In principle, there could be a spiritual science, there's a material science. There could be a science of anything. You can't rule it out. You may, maybe we just don't know enough about it. So if you're really a scientist, and of course, if you know Spanish, like, like, like well, conscience, conciencia, science, it's, um, you know, it's about knowledge. So if you really are a sincere, open-minded, unprejudiced, unbigoted, unweird psychologically searcher, <laughs> you know, seeker of truth, you have to be open that whatever it is, whatever the ultimate truth is, if there is an ultimate truth, 
I want to know. I have that courage. And, and what's that thing, sapere odia? There, there was this expression, the scientific revolution, which meant dare to know. It's almost like, let's say, you have a crush on someone, you have no idea if they like you or not, and finally you got to like muster all your courage and say, uh, would you like to go out with me? And, 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 and you may be totally annihilated because <laughs> if it turns out that person never thought of you twice in their life and find you to be the most inert object, <laughs> like nothing happens. <laughs> and so you can understand, it's been there, done that. So <laughs> you can understand that the, the, this expression of the scientific revolution and in terms of, and even in the enlightenment, dare to know. That was, it, because it is, it takes courage. And so if, 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 someone is really attached to living in a universe where they can control everything in principle, then, uh, you know, daring to investigate the possibility that there are things in the universe I can't control, it takes a little courage. It takes a little humility. And so you just sort of go out there into the universe and whatever's out there, I have the courage to face it. So if that's your approach, just as there are ways that we, des we design controlled experiments for things which in principle we can't control, how would you design an experiment rationally, logically? How would you design an experiment to detect something which is greater than you, something that you can't control? You can't control it, yet you want to design an experiment to detect it. And actually there is an answer. Because... And, and let's take analogies from the world we do know. Let's take analogies from the human world. In the human world, let's say, for example, you're a journalist and you want to interview some celebrity that doesn't give interviews. But if you can get this interview, it will make your career. So what do you do? You have to find some way to ingratiate yourself to that person. I mean, there's even stories of, of reporters like sent gifts to, to people they wanted to interview or like mysterious gifts and arouse their curiosity. Somehow or other, you have to persuade that person to see you. So if you want to get a job, let's say you really need the job, they really don't need you. Let's say they've got like 100 qualified applicants and they don't need you, but you really need that job. You have to ingratiate yourself. Then you buy one of those books, you know, job interviews for dummies. And so basically we have so many examples in the real world. Or if there's a, let's say a guy is trying to, is falling in love with a girl and she's not really looking his way. So maybe he has to somehow or other, you know, do you like candy? Do you like, that's, that's ancient history, right? Uh, do you like iPhones? It's like, so, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, this is, I'm shamelessly dating myself here, but, but still the, the basic idea here is that if someone is in a better position than you, higher position, because you really want them, but they maybe don't want you right now, or you need the job, but they don't need you, or for whatever reason, you have to please somehow please that person 
somehow get on the good side of that person, whether it's an application to a very, very selective college, whatever it is. Now, apply that to, and, and let's not use the horrid G word, you know, God. Let's just say that you're trying to find out, because you don't know, if there's anything that really exists out there in the universe that's greater than me. So you would have to attempt to placate, appease, and great, you know, that higher being. And if you look at if you look at the history of the world long before long before they even had organized religion, interestingly, if you look at ancient Sanskrit texts like Mahabharata, for example, or Bhagavatam, they have no religious institutions. I mean, here we have these, I mean, the Mahabharata is the biggest book ever written in any language, and it's, of course, a little bit of that is it's very repetitive in some places, but, but still, it's this huge book, and um, there are no religion, and it describes, it's actually the, 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 by far the most comprehensive, detailed, you could say ethnography, or study we have of the ancient world, at least in South Asia, and really an ancient Indo-European civilization, which is another topic. So there are no religious institutions. They don't exist. And, and yet, Pre-religion, you could say, in the sense that if by religion you mean an institution, some organized thing, there's no religion there. They have spirituality. They, have, they live in a world in which they believe they know. Not that they believe. They, they actually have intercourse with higher beings. And actually, I just remember a talk I gave at Florida State University like 80 years ago, but Here's a way to look at history. And maybe I'll just leave you very quickly with this. Here's another way to get at mythology, legend, and history. Because what if, here, here, here's a hypothetical. What if virtually every developed ancient culture was, is right, and thousands of years ago there really were, there really was a higher civilization. It was not metallic it was not iron based or steel based it wasn't it was actually a much more sophisticated you could say natural technology it's interesting because if you look at if you compare the american star wars and the english uh lord of the rings what's interesting is in both narratives you, people have special powers but the american thing is all you know, it's like that, like, infinite geometry that comes over your head in the first Star Wars. <laughs> it's like that infinite metallic geometry. And so, basically, the world of Star Wars is extremely industrial. It's, you know, it's metal-based, and it's technology, and there's levers and buttons. It's, it's, very it's very mechanical and very industrial, but very advanced. So, so the concept we have in America, certainly, is that as you become more and more advanced, you just get more and more advanced industry and more and more advanced metal-based machines. However, in, in England, where you have Lord of the Rings, they have all these powers, but it's all natural. You know, it's just earth, water, fire, air, and you chant mantras, because that's what they are. You know, you chant things, and so, so, <clears throat> Here's, here's a possibility for you to consider. Personally, I, I'm going to out myself here. I actually believe it's true. 
but so I'll just I'll present it to you as a hypothetical that thousands and thousands of years ago all over the world people had in some ways many actually in prehistory prehistory doesn't mean cavemen prehistory just means that there's we can't document it because people didn't write things down it was an or they were oral societies they were oral societies not because they were stupid but because they were very bright they memorized things they could remember things they had incredible mental powers and so therefore it was an oral society but in any case so in that sense, it's prehistory, not primitive, but pre because history literally means, you know, things for which you have documentation. So in many ways, it was advanced. They actually did have communication with other worlds. They actually were communicating. That's a story we get in practically every developed ancient civilization, whether it's Greece, whether it's India, whether it's, I mean, you name it. And what happened is, that as in fact you find the same story for example in Hesiod, Hesiod and Homer the two greatest ancient Greek writers and they're talking about a world which was ancient for them so therefore you could say roughly speaking what Homer and Hesiod are talking about is the world that Krishna appeared in because they're talking about a very ancient world and they even whether you have Empedocles or Hesiod these ancient Greeks who are halfway back to Krishna, by the way. They're halfway back to the time that Krishna appeared two and a half thousand years ago. They say, they all say, all these great ancient civilizations say, the world used to be more advanced. They all say that. The world was much more advanced, and it's not like nowadays human beings actually had regular communication with higher beings in other worlds. That's the, and that's the picture we get. That's what all the ancients say about their ancient past which they were much closer to than we are. So if that was the case, let's just say hypothetically, if that was the case, then what happened is, as we get into the present age, which in Sanskrit is called Kali Yuga, and, and in Hesiod, who wrote thousands of years ago, it's called you know the Iron Age, kind of like, ew, the Iron Age. And so in this age, actually, um, humanity becomes degraded, and they lose that higher technology. But then they rebound and they develop their own kind of Kali Yuga technology. And there is a, a sort of an iron-based technology, a, a machine technology for this age, which is not as good as what they had earlier, but it brought people out of the dark ages. It brought people out of... So now, meanwhile, when, when people today look back at those stories, look back at those ancient civilizations, all of whom say that the world used to be much more advanced, Precisely because we no longer have that technology, people think, oh, that's mythology. And adding to the perception that it's mythology is that the ancient stories did in fact become mythologized. So that you have these stories coming down or, or, or this oral history, but oral histories are notoriously unstable and um, and uh, what, what's that word, oh my God? Anyway, un unstable and volatile, uh, especially when you're talking about things that no longer exist. In other words, let's say, for example, let, let, let's say just hypothetically, you're living maybe five, six, seven thousand years ago, maybe 8,000 years ago on this planet, and let's say you do have communication with other people on other planets. So because it's going on, 
even though you only, there's no need to record it because everyone knows it. And so in a sense, it only becomes recorded when it's no longer happening because people want to save it so that we don't forget it. And so they write it down, but then as people lose contact with that technology, it starts to seem like just tall tales, fables, mythology. And then you get a scientific revolution and it all becomes officially certified as mythology. And then you get sort of a, a nice guy, but sort of a mixed blessing, Joseph Campbell, who comes along and, you know, I like Joseph Campbell, but he actually, he's, he's very much a double-edged sword. <laughs> the good thing that Joseph Campbell, you know, Joseph Campbell's the guy that, I mean, he inspired George Lucas, the guy that first really made mythology into its own academic subject. And he, he said that actually we find universal stories and so on. So the good thing about Joseph Campbell, he says, is don't just make fun of myths. Don't look down on, on mythology. It's valuable. It's actually the original depth psychology. Because it, it's like you go to a psychologist and, okay, here's some spots on a paper. What do you see here? I see mommy stabbing daddy or something. So it's, you know, so when you, it's like when you use your imagination, all kinds of, that's how, that's a very standard technique in psychology to bring out what the unconscious is, you know, you're induced to tell stories. And so they said, Joseph Campbell said, wait a second, this is actually a map to deep human psychology. Don't throw the map away. And the very fact that there tends to be, as there does, universal mythology all over the world, whether it's ancient, whether it's, you know, Japanese or Polynesian or European or, or whatever it is. As we said, it's valuable and it tells us so much we can learn from it. But that's the good part of Joseph Campbell. The other part of Joseph Campbell is that he says, of course, we all know these things didn't really happen. And so Joseph Campbell embraces the idea of the old idea of mythology as something that didn't really happen. It didn't really happen, but he says, even though it didn't really happen, it's valuable and we should respect it and we can learn from it, but it didn't really happen. So, um, so if that's the case, it's natural. I mean, I mean, here's, here's an analogy and maybe I'll, I'll actually end with this. Here's an analogy. Imagine, imagine that Aristotle was right and life on earth goes through cycles where civilization develops it reaches a certain like really high achievement and then there's you know cataclysms catastrophes and human beings destroy their own civilization or it, it could even be meteorological for example they say the great harappan civilization of uh what is now northwest indian pakistan which is one of the most I mean, this incredibly advanced civilization which existed from between 4,000 and 7 or 8,000 years ago. And they say that the whole civilization kind of either just collapsed or they had to all move because the rivers changed. If you look at a map of India, uh, India is sort of shaped like a diamond. And up at the top of the diamond, which is up in the Himalayan mountains, you have the, uh, the um, source of all these great rivers. I mean, really big, powerful rivers. And so literally, you could have like a little earthquake. You could have some kind of seismic activity. And it wouldn't take very much 
so that a river, instead of going down to the east, goes to the west, or goes the river that went west went east. It, it, because it's way up in the mountains, just one little thing, and then suddenly this river goes the other way, and, and of course, ancient civilizations tend to be all based on rivers for communication, for drinking water, for hygiene, for commerce, for everything. And so if the river suddenly is flowing a thousand miles that away, you are up a dry creek. So for various reasons, you could say meteorological or climactic or, or man-made or whatever, civilizations rise and fall. And so, um, oh God, what was I going to say about that? I just did that whole thing. <laughs> what, was, what, was, what was I just going to say? <laughs> Aristotle. 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 Yeah, Aristotle. So, but but if that actually happened with us, then despite all of our modern advancements, there was a great civilization, and all these mythologies, which largely agree with each other, are are in a sense mythologized histories. There's real history there, but it was mythologized over time, and uh, and what's really left of it? So you could say, what's left of that civilization? Fortunately, the one thing that is still left from that, if this is true, from that advanced civilization, which was all over the world. It was all over the world, by the way. It was, it was a global civilization. The one thing that survived is the most important part of that civilization, which was the spiritual knowledge. And the most popular form of it, people don't know, that they actually have a remnant of a great civilization that existed beyond the historiographic horizon, the most popular version of it is called yoga. And of course now yoga, you know, it's become very physical and athletic and all that in its, you know, physical athletic Western home. But the, the deep yoga as a, I'm actually just finishing a translation of yoga sutras. I mean, I did translate now and I'm going to publish a book, but, so uh, infomercial. Anyway, <laughs> so the original yoga system is actually a remnant. It's actually a remnant of that ancient civilization. And that's why we find little seals from that Harappan civilization of Shiva, the yogi. There, there's one famous picture of, of Shiva as a Mahayogi in meditation. And they found a picture of this in Denmark. So anyway, th there really was a global civilization. And uh, so in a sense, what we're trying to do by teaching this Krishna consciousness is try to bring back that great spiritual wisdom, that knowledge, which actually spiritually sustained an advanced civilization for thousands of years. So it's real. And uh, go team. <laughs> <laughs> So at your own risk, you can ask questions because you, might, you may trigger me again. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you again for speaking and for being here. It's always an honor of being in your presence. Um, I want to get your perspective on what makes a religious movement religious and would you consider the Hare Krishna being religious? Okay. 
It's always good to start with a non-controversial question. <laughs> the first thing I'll say is the word religion comes from the Latin re ligare, like a ligament, it connects. So the, interestingly, the original meaning of religion is, is the same as the original meaning of yoga. Uh, yoga, of course, is from the Sanskrit root yuj, which means to connect, to link, to bind. And, and, and it has, let's say, uh, connotatively all kinds of means. It, it's, it's a multivalent word in Sanskrit, but the original base meaning is to connect, to link. And we still have English words because English is an Indo-European language. We still have English words from the same root as yoga, like conjugal. Jug is the Sanskrit root, you know, huge. And so con, of course, means with in Latin. So it's like an intimate connection or to yoke two things together, right? You can yoke two things together. So, and so yoke and yoga are the same word. They're actually the same word. It's just that, so, so the, I mean, in terms of phonology, changing from a K to a G is, it's nothing. Because they're both in the same phonetic row. Anyway, I won't go into all that, but so, so yeah, yoke is, yo the word yoke is yoga, it's connecting things. So uh, personally, when I drank the Kool-Aid and joined the Hare Krishna, <laughs> God, what was I thinking? Anyway, <laughs> when, I, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, um, I swear to God, I was not looking for a religion. I really wasn't. I was born with one. I mean, you know, I... I, my parents had a religion. It was, it was okay. You know, if you want a religion, I had a religion. So what I was looking for was a spiritual science. Because I knew by direct experience, by direct irrefutable, to use the technical philosophical term, properly basic, self-evident experience, I knew that there's a higher realm. I knew that there's some divine something. And it's intelligent. It's conscious. It's not stupid. And it, and it, it's and I just don't know what it is. So I thought, well, I better find out because if something like that really exists, obviously that's what I should be focusing on, because that will explain everything else. It's like the one equation that explains all other equations. You know, it's it's the holy grail of physics. They haven't found it yet, but it's the one equation that explains all equations. And so, and that's you, how many any of you heard of Vedanta? People used to have heard of it, but they're used to anyway. Never mind the verb form. So, so Vedanta, um, it begins. It, it's like this very sophisticated Sanskrit work, ancient Sanskrit work, and and it's called a sutra. Sutra, by the way, is cognate, linguistically connected to the English word so and suture, because it just means the thread. So a sutra is just like the thread. Like you you say something, but in so few words that no one can figure out what you mean, so it needs a commentary. Anyway, so it begins, the Vedanta Sutras begin by saying that um, Atato Brahma Jigyasa, now therefore, try to understand the absolute. And so commentators forever have been saying, how can you start a book with the word therefore? Because the English word therefore in Sanskrit, Atta, means it's, it's a word used for conclusion. Like you give an argument, therefore. You don't start with therefore, you end with therefore. So what the heck are, you know, the sages, you know, were they just drinking too much Soma beverage? Or, you know, why did they start this book with therefore? 
and and now ata ataha now therefore and, and what they all agreed on what this means is that now therefore that you have realized that you're not going to be perfectly happy and you're not going to be perfectly wise as a materialist you know we all have material needs we should satisfy our material needs no problem but that is not enough to fulfill our deepest hankerings our deepest wishes for knowledge for pure love not going to happen on the gross physical platform it's just not going to happen so if you have realized that now therefore you're ready to inquire into investigate not a relative truth which means it's relative but an absolute truth something which is always true everywhere and that's how it begins and then the next sutra defines what the absolute truth is as it is the source of everything it's the source of everything everything comes from it and ultimately everything to find its own perfection must return to it and so interesting ideas oh anyway back to the question obviously i am being evasive Wow, I could I could actually be a politician if I keep going. <laughs> Never answer the question. So, what did I? So I'll tell you what I thought I was doing. What I thought, and I'll be very honest. I'm not gonna. I mean, I'm really gonna tell you what happened. The good, the bad, and the ugly. When I joined the Hare Krishna movement in 1969 in Berkeley, what I thought I was doing was embracing a spiritual science because I, I didn't want another religion. I didn't want any religion really at that point in my life. What I really wanted was just a spiritual science. And it's like if you study the sociology and the psychology of conversion experiences, that is a branch of social science. And so typically when people have powerful conversion experiences, which can be political, it can be conversion to a particular political view or to a religious view. And when people have powerful conversion experiences, they tend to kind of blank slate themselves. Like what I've now learned is so powerful, it turned my whole world right side up that everything I thought I knew may not be true anymore. So you have this radical blank, self-blank slating kind of that happens. And in, in that mood, you'll accept all kinds of things because why sweat the small stuff? The big thing is happening. So like when I... When I joined, the, and I'll be very honest, when I joined the Hare Krishna, when I was told that you should wear these orange robes, which in those days were actually bedsheets. I mean, <laughs> once the Hare Krishna went back to India, we, we really started buying like soft cotton robes. But in those days, it really was just cheaps. <laughs> and so I thought I've had this powerful experience. I've discovered this amazing truth. And so if I'm supposed to wear a robe, that that's part of the package. Okay, there must be some good reason for it, although I don't really see it now. <laughs> or I'm supposed to cut my hair in a certain way, or you're only, or I should use certain recipes when I cook, or, you know, in different ways, make, you know, use Indian-style music. I was just like, what I just gained is so powerful. It's so amazing. And the other stuff, it's like, whatever. These are the people that gave me this knowledge, so they must know what they're talking about. Of course, later I learned that um, the good stuff was still good. The powerful enlightenment was still totally happening. But 
the ethnic requirement wasn't really a requirement. And, and so what I set out to do is I, I became convinced that the only way we can really get the world, or at least a significant part of the world, take this great knowledge seriously, which I think is really the best thing you can do to help the world, is that we really need to present a spiritual science and not like maybe 30% science, 30%, you know, ethnic chauvinism, like this is a better ethnicity, and, you know, some superstition thrown in for good measure. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, no, I don't think so. It doesn't even work for me, and I'm a leader in this thing. And so at that point, I realized I've got to get back to the, just the pure spiritual science and, and try to present that to people. And you can take a pass on the ethnicity. I mean, if you're an Indophile, that's great. I'm not bashing Indian culture. It's a great culture. They have a fantastic classical culture, whether it's music or literature, or, you know, everything. It's, it's an advanced ethnic tradition. It's just that I was born in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I grew up on the Beach Boys, and now I love Jane Austen. And so, you know, I just, I, I, I just have different... And I like, you know, vegan cheese sandwiches and, and, and french fries. So <laughs> what can I do? So, so that's, so as far as did I join a religion, I would say I just pursued knowledge. I was really knowledge-based. And at that point in my life, joining a particular movement and adopting certain customs was just the best way to pursue that knowledge. And I, I still, I think it was. I mean, I was, I was very immature and, um, you know, dangerous combination, immature young male and a uh, <laughs> immature movement. Anyway, so, so I don't think of it as a religion. I don't think of myself as religious, to be honest. I mean, I do follow the principles. I'm, I'm not like a, a crass hypocrite in the bhakti yoga system. But um, like, for example, when I see that they're about to do a ritual in the temple, I usually go the other way. I mean, it, it, it's not that, I mean, I respect the rituals. I know that some people are definitely ritual centric and I respect them and I respect the rituals and I, I know they benefit people. I just, it's just not me. I just, I'm, I'm, I, I just not really interested in rituals from any religion or any secular group. I'm just not ritual centric. And so I'm not into the rituals per se, and I also, I'm not one of those people that never met a rule they didn't like. You know, some people, it's like, like you can never have too many rules. And to me, everything that I follow, every rule that I follow, I follow because I have a good reason, because logically it makes sense to me. For example, I just had a, I had a very fascinating discussion today at UCLA. I, I live near UCLA, so I walk there all the time. And uh, I somehow th there's, there's this Christian group. I forgot the name. There's several Christian groups there at the, the Bruin Walk there where they have all the tables set up. And, and even though it's not my path, I thought, you know, I, I, I give them credit. They're sincere. They're trying their best. In their own way, they love God. And so I thought, you know, they're nice young people. That, that's kind of how I saw it. And so, you know, I talked to them. And, you know, we, we met. And so there was one of them, there was this one guy from South Carolina, really, really smart guy, he was brilliant. 
He's really good. He really knows, like, because early Christianity, like the life of Jesus, is an academic subject taught at every major university. It's, it's a very serious academic subject. And, um, and he, he was kind of, you know, he was a faithful Christian, but he was also, he knew some stuff. We talked for about an hour, and we had a really great talk. I mean, we, we both really enjoyed it. We had a really great talk, and uh, neither of us was fanatical. And I kept telling him, and he, he accepted it. He accepted it was a good point. There were certain things in the doctrine. I said, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like that, for example, that if, if we're not behaving so well, God has to kill us. But he doesn't kill us. He has to kill somebody else because he has to kill somebody. <laughs> and I just, I just said, as much as I love Jesus, which I do, uh, this just doesn't work for me logically. And I don't think he really taught this. So, and so I said that if, I said, you know, either in bhakti yoga or in any religion, I can't really give myself to something that just doesn't make sense to me. And that really is my policy in the Hare Krishna movement. That everything I do makes sense to me. I have a good reason for it in terms of, and even the fact that I, I'm actually a member of the governing body. Don't throw things at me. So, but um, of, of the movement, and there's, you know, it's, it, there's like over a million people in it. But, and so based on my studies of sociology and my studies of the history of religions, I believe it's in my rational interest and it's in the rational interest of the world to take part in a, a, an organized religion in terms of efficacy and because I just know how human history works. And I know that if there's not some form of organization that ideas die or they become perverted. And so in order to have, you could say, philosophical discipline, in order to, so just based on my socio-historical knowledge of religion. So everything I'm doing, even when I participate, let's say, in, in institutional things or governing boards where I don't think everything is like incredible, but I think it's still, it's better than it would be otherwise. And so that's what I'm doing. I, I believe that I am a very individualistic person who really absolutely needs things to make sense. As you may have noticed, I have a little rational side to me. And, and so that's what I think I'm doing. I belong to an institution because logically, I think that it's better for me and better for the world, despite the inevitable shortcomings. And, and that's why I do it, because rationally, I think it's better than not doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.